Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. In this episode, I'm going to share three different articles. Um, the only thing that they have in common is the fact that they all come from the May 2003 Scottish Rite Journal of Freemasonry, Southern Jurisdiction, USA. So as I'm going through my hordes and hordes of various reading materials, sometimes I find it's interesting just to mix it up and give you guys a few different articles um, versus trying to find a bunch of things that tie together. So the first article here is called The Perfect Shirt by Mark S. Hancock, 32nd Degree. I have a confession to make. I secretly desire the perfect shirt. I have taken up the personal, if not Quixotic, quest for the single shirt that meets my exacting standards. Perhaps I accept this personal challenge because I spend 90% of my waking moments in dress shirts, or perhaps the search for the perfect shirt satisfies a less utilitarian need, my vanity. Regardless, I seek out shirts that have a 4-inch barrel cuff with no less than 5 pleats, a certain blend of cotton, and of course a 2.5-inch button-down collar. So far, I've been forced to settle on a design Joseph Brooks brought to us in 1896 from the polo fields of Great Britain. However, if Mr. Brooks were alive today, he would find me nothing less than a pesky and demanding customer. So, my personal quest continues. Directly across the street from my house is a laundry run by an immigrant family come from Korea. My wife, Carrie, and I are very well acquainted with the manager, Lou. I absolutely had to get to know the person I entrust with my coveted shirts. Lou is one of the hardest working people I have ever known. She is hard at it by 7.15 a.m. when I am on my way to work and when I return at 8 or 9 p.m. Lou seems to keep these hours six days a week. No matter what, Lou always greets me with a smile and a friendly, Hello, Hancock! Her English isn't all that great, but she manages to communicate with her customers. At some point, I realize that my shirts are probably nothing special to Lou. They are simply another heavy load of laundry that she must wash and package to make her living. I then decided to become something more to Lou, something more than an overly privileged young man who insists on medium starch and hangers. I decided to offer impromptu practice in conversational English. Every time I go in now, no matter how busy I am and if Lou is free, I take an extra few minutes for a basic exchange. Nice weather today, or how are you doing this afternoon? This way, Lou has an extra opportunity to practice her English and feel like a part of the greater English-speaking community. I can honestly say that, over time, Lou's English has greatly improved because we can now have conversations at least five or six sentences in length. One day, after one of our conversations, Lou put her hand over her chest and said what sounded like, Hancock, you have very green head. I immediately looked into a nearby mirror. I thought she was telling me that I looked ill. She realized I didn't understand, so she stepped out from behind the counter, placed her hand on my chest, and repeated very slowly, Hancock, you have a very great heart. Thank you for talking with me. I walked away from that conversation astounded by the impact I had made on this person's life. I thought to myself, what did I do to deserve such a sincere compliment? All along, I engaged this person in my worldly quest for maintaining my perfect shirts. However, I ended up benefiting her and learning the value of centering my endeavors on meaningful pursuits rather than worldly goals. 
It is no secret that masonry provides us with allegorical lessons and various metaphors for personal edification. However, I personally glean this same lesson from the second degree. When experiencing the lecture portion of that degree, I remember learning that I was now qualified as a fellow craft to receive my wages of corn, representing nourishment, wine, representing refreshment, and oil, representing joy. During the period of King Solomon's temple, each of these commodities was very valuable and arguably more desirable than currency. However, the second degree makes it clear that wages are not to be the focus of our work as Freemasons. For example, the ritual details our duty to study the liberal arts, grammar, rhetoric, logic, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Furthermore, we are charged with the work of a Freemason in the sublime science of geometry or architecture as the builders of our communities. I think the lesson, simply put, is not to focus on the material gain in our pursuits, but to focus on building our communities, which will yield the bounty of improving ourselves as men. Eventually, money is spent, fancy shirts become soiled, and buildings crumble. However, healthy communities and meaningful relationships endure the passage of time. Each of us has the challenge to stop, take a look around, and evaluate exactly what we are pursuing. How can we improve our present condition and our community? The second degree leaves us fully empowered to do so. We are invested with the square, plumb, and level, metaphorically, the abilities to walk upright before man and God, and to always square our virtues over the level of time. It is up to us periodically to take a moment out and evaluate what we are looking for in the journey of life and to realign our center, our pursuits to meaningful ends. My experience with Lou definitely brought me back to center. I think I was going somewhat around the bend with my quest for the perfect shirt without realizing that the real impact I was having on another human being. Now, every time I go in, the focus is less on the starch for the collars and more on the few pleasant moments I have to brighten someone's day. The lessons of the second degree have taught me that such a focus in my relationships and acquaintances, neighbors, friends, and family, is ideal. At the same time, I recognize I am bound to pursue worldly achievements. Now that I am invested with the tools of a mason, I will do whatever I can periodically to slow down, take a moment out, and evaluate who I am and where I'm going. Simply put, thank you to masonry from someone who now better appreciates the craft's ideals. They feel better than any perfect dress shirt ever could. This next article is written by James R. Russell, and it talks about a visit to Bombay enhances a brother's understanding of Freemasonry. The title of the article is The Builders in Bombay. As a professor of Middle Eastern languages, I've left the West traveling East many times. But when I was raised a Mason, the desire to visit foreign countries took on a new meaning. In the summer of 1988, I visited India and Pakistan to deliver a series of lectures to the Parsis of Karachi and to collaborate on a book with a Zoroastrian priest in Bombay. The Parsis are descendants of Persian pilgrims who fled Iran over a thousand years ago seeking religious freedom. They follow the ancient faith of Zoroaster, who preached the worship of one god, Ahura Mazda, the Lord of Wisdom, whose way is righteousness and whose emblem is light. He is mentioned often in old Masonic books as one of the earliest and greatest prophets of mankind. Also, he is, as the character Sarastro, the master in the great Masonic opera The Magic Flute of Brother Mozart. I stayed in Bombay with Parsi friends and learned to my delight that the Parsis have for generations been preeminent in the Masonic craft in India. In the Grand Lodge at Bombay, there is a life-size marble statue of Khan Bahadur Mistri. The title Khan is equivalent to knight, 
the grandfather of my own host and old friend. The building is a virtual portrait gallery of Parsi baronets, judges, and scholars in their antique Masonic regalia. There was at one time a Parsi Masonic study circle, and many books are still available on masonry and its resonances with the teachings of Zoroaster. The Grand Lodge is an enormous old mansion tucked into a quiet street between the palm-ringed open space of the Azad Maidan and the crowds and noise of the Victoria Terminus Railway Station. On previous visits to India, I had seen it, but I had never thought that one day it would feel like home away from home. Though my host was not a mason, he thought kindly enough of my eagerness to visit a lodge, and he rang his elderly aunt, the daughter and wife of masons, who lived in a huge old house in Malad, a distant suburb. She was pleased to learn I was a mason, and immediately arranged for me to meet Brother Marfatya, a friend of hers and master of a lodge. She also made the arduous two-hour journey into town to effect the meeting. Almost glowing with the light enthusiasm gives, she spoke to me of how masonry perfects the human character, requiring us to meet men of other faiths and stations in life as equals and brothers, of how Masonic teachings strengthen the soul in a world which all too often regards only the material. She introduced me to Brother Marfatya and retired while he established my credentials, after which he invited me to a meeting of his lodge. Like everything else in India, masonry is complex and colorful. Brother Marfatya kindly gave me a copy of the Masonic calendar of the District Grand Lodge of Bombay, English Constitution, which informs us that the first lodge was established in Bombay on March 24, 1758, only to disappear in 1813. The Lodge of Amity, established before 1787, was never registered in England. The next lodge, Philanthropists at Surat, was erased from the rolls in the evidently fateful year of 1813. After these fitful beginnings, masonry became more firmly established, generally by English soldiers, but Indians of various backgrounds quickly entered the craft, as P Kipling's poem, My Mother Lodge, so beautifully attests. Today, lodges of the Scottish, English, Irish, and Indian constitutions coexist, and Brother Marfatia works in no less than 25 Masonic bodies attached to one or another of all four. In the lodge I visited, there is not one, but five volumes of sacred law the Bible for Jews and Christians, the Avesta for Zoroastrians, the Bhagavad Gita for Hindus, the Quran for Muslims, and the Granth Sahib for Sikhs. A few brethren sauntered in for tea in Brother Marfatia's office. I looked at some circulars and newsletters and discovered from these, as well as from the conversation, that Indian masonry faces some of the same challenges we do. A notice admonishes brethren to pay their dues regularly and to attend communications. Another records the unfortunate letter of a brother who objects to the use of the word refreshment, evidently forgetting his Masonic ritual, instead of banquet in one announcement. He thinks this is a pretext for serving sandwiches instead of dinner, and so on. Funny but sad. Soft drinks were served before we moved upstairs to be clothed for our meeting. I was introduced to the brethren and asked to sign the register. The good brothers belonged to a variety of faiths and professions, but their friendly greeting erased at once any sense I might have had of being in an alien place, and that is, of course, as it should be. One brother from another lodge, an Indian Catholic sailor who spoke impeccable British English, told me of his own travels in foreign countries and of his present employment in a shipping firm, virtually all of whose employees are in the craft. It seems to go with traveling. Their ritual differs from ours, resembling what I have heard of the English system of emulation, but enough was recognizable, and of course the brothers assisted me in doing the proper things. Degree work was conducted that evening, which was also extremely interesting. The vestments of the officers are curious, differing slightly from our own. 
The temple in Bombay resembles the Grand Lodge at London, though in Bombay one is, thankfully, never without the soft whir of ceiling fans to relieve the tropical heat. It is the custom in India, after every meeting, to repair to the Great Hall for a formal banquet marked by elaborate toasts and much conviviality. The cuisine was Parsi, with vegetarian dishes provided for our Hindu brethren. I was asked to speak, and I was pleased to present to the Lodge a bronze bicentennial medal of our Grand Lodge of New York. The beautiful seal was much admired and remarked upon, especially the Ark of the Covenant, and it was decided on the spot to permanently display the medal on the altar. The conversation turned to American masonry, and many of the brethren were aware of the Masonic symbolism of our national capital. One brother, a steward on Air India, asked which flight I was to take the next day. They wished me a good trip, and of course I cordially invited them all to visit our lodge and observe our work. The next evening, I arrived in plenty of time at Bombay Airport and checked in. When I asked for a window seat, preferably near a door to have a bit of extra leg room on the 24-hour trip, the clerk looked at me curiously. That seat seems to have been reserved for you already on the computer, sir, he said. It was a comfortable journey as I reflected that the cement of brotherhood had been spread a little wider. Through such experiences, as I grow slowly in the craft, I reflect on the wise words of Paul Nettle from his book Mozart and Masonry, 1957. Yet there is a Masonic secret, a mystery, an experience that cannot be taught or explained because it lies, like every mystic experience, beyond the realm of controlled consciousness. At its deepest level, it is identical with intense feeling and empathy. The secret of Freemasonry is the secret of experiencing true love for all mankind, a positive attitude towards man and life, and broad affirmation of God. Our final article in this episode is called Towards a Masonic Renewal by J.M. Kinney, 32nd Degree. A masonry conscious and proud of its deepest resources could go far in satisfying this generation's hunger for a sense of connection with the past, with decent values, and with like-minded people around the world. For the last 20 years, the Masonic community has been perplexed and concerned about its shrinking membership. Disturbing statistics are often quoted, where once there were 4 million Masons in the U.S., now there are only half as many. One in four American men used to be Masons, now only one in 100 are. Moreover, the average age of Masonic members has been climbing, so much so that Freemasonry is often perceived as an old folks club. No one is happy with this situation, but solutions have been few and far between. As someone who has been aware of Masonry for decades, but has only recently joined, I'd like to share a few thoughts with the hope that they might assist my elder brothers in seeing Masonry through new eyes. At the time I came of age in the beginning of the 1970s, joining a Masonic Lodge was the last thing on my mind. Like many of my generation, I felt deeply alienated from a government and society that seemed intent on waging an unwinnable war in Southeast Asia. I already believed in Masonic principles such as brotherhood and religious freedom, but I preferred long hair and worn blue jeans and t-shirts rather than suits and ties. I strongly suspect that most lodges of that era would have been flabbergasted if my friends and I had shown up and petitioned for membership, but the issue simply never arose. The craft was as square as it gets, no pun intended, and my circle of friends and I were preoccupied with being hip. If a Mason had noted with pride that President Gerald Ford was a 33rd degree Mason, we would have rolled our eyes and smiled politely. There was definitely a generation gap, and Masonry seemed firmly planted on the opposite side of that divide. And yet there were elements of, within Freemasonry that beckoned to us, despite, or perhaps because of, our alienation. These elements weren't Masonry's public persona, the patriotic picnics or Shriner parade, 
But the enigmatic symbols, the sense of traditions going back centuries, and the possibilities of inspiring and transforming rituals. We felt a hunger to be sure, but it wasn't for pancake breakfast or charity barbecues. It was for spiritual meaning in our lives. Masonry is not a religion, despite what some of its ill-informed critics assert, but it does teach religious tolerance and encourages the spiritual growth of its individual members. It does so not through theology or dogma, but through the living examples of its members and the symbolic messages of its degrees. Had this aspect of the tradition been given more prominence, both publicly and within the organization, Masonry might have attracted a generation of potential members, which it unfortunately lost. The 1960s and 1970s are now long gone, and most of us who set ourselves apart from the mainstream have made our peace with society at large. But the hunger for a sense of connection with the past, with decent values, and with like-minded people around the world remains. A masonry which is conscious and proud of its deepest resources could go far in satisfying this hunger, but to do so might entail reframing masonry's own self-image. Until now, the Masonic strategy for wider acceptance has seemed to be to emphasize those elements that it shares with most other fraternal organizations, its community involvement, its charitable works, and its socializing. These are worthy, to be sure, but they are also not so different from similar elements in the Lions or the Elks or Rotary. What makes Masonry unique and potentially more attractive, I'd argue, is its tradition of mythic rituals and symbol systems that can speak to every generation anew and which contain within them the potential for inspiring a greater sense of connection with God and with serving others. The recent attacks on Masonry by fundamentalists and paranoid conspiracy theorists have often targeted and grossly misinterpreted those components of Masonry that are least understood by Masons and non-Masons alike. Since these attacks and misinterpretations are commonly intermixed with quotations out of context, outright lies, and ill-informed suspicions, the response of the Masonic community has been to further downplay anything that smacks of mystery or deeper symbolism. Unfortunately, this allows one's critics to set the agenda for Masonry's future, a future where criticism is avoided by cleaving to the uncontroversial surface and where symbols which derive their strength precisely from their capacity to sustain individual interpretations and multiple meanings are reduced to simplistic equations that satisfy no one. This course might reduce the heat in the short term, but it risks the craft's survival in the long run. A vital tradition reduced to only shallow understanding of its own rituals and to a purely social fellowship may struggle on for a time, but at the cost of its original essence. What is the solution then? There is no single answer, of course, but there may be several partial answers that together can turn the tide. One, an invigorated emphasis on the Masonic mysteries that engages members both new and old in an exploration of the meanings embedded in rituals and symbols. Two, encouragement to research lodges to widen their focus from Masonic historical minutiae to the esoteric and spiritual traditions from which masonry and its appended bodies have derived much inspiration. Three, an increase in publications, public programs, and lectures open to non-masons that correct misunderstandings, clarify historical questions, and kindle an interest in Masonic values. Four, further support for Grand Lodges to recognize and regularize relations with Prince Hall Lodges so masonry may truly live up to its ideals of brotherhood and non-discrimination. Five, consideration of making a perceived weakness, so many Masons of retired age, into a strength, initiating mentoring programs where experienced elder brethren can offer assistance and advice to young men starting out in life. The last 20 years have seen a striking increase in books and TV programs, not only about Masonry, but also about various related topics such as the Knights Templar, 
Rosicrucianism, Initiatory Societies, and Esoteric Symbolism. Some of these books have been terrible, and some have been excellent. Some have led to a renewed interest in Masonry, and some have led to increased fears. But whatever the case, they have all contributed to a growing awareness among younger generations that Masonry is intriguing at the very least. If Masons can embrace this interest and respond to it by sharing their enthusiasm, as well as correcting misperceptions, the craft may find itself growing again in numbers and energy. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.